Three weeks ago, I broke a vow. It's one that I had made before God and before the elders of our church. But I have to be honest with you and tell you that I broke the vow. Now, here's the backstory. Ten years ago, we took a group of men from this church off the coast of Washington on a deep sea fishing trip. It was the worst experience of my life. If you have seen the movie The Perfect Storm, you have a pretty good idea of the conditions in which we fished 10 years ago. The seas were angry, and they must have been raging upward to 100 feet the day that we were out there. I begged the captain to get us to dry ground, and all he would say to me was, Preacher, you just need to keep fishing. Well, how do you fish when you're almost doing backflips in a boat? It was terrible. The worst part about it, though, was not just the angry seas. It was what the angry seas produced within me. I vomited like I have never vomited in my life. If the seas were angry, the puke was coming out of me violently all day long. I am pretty positive on that day we were on the deck of that boat no less than 30 hours in one day. You figure out how that works. I threw up everything that I had eaten from birth to date. That was it. That morning, I had eaten one donut hole and I had a swallow of Mountain Dew. Let me tell you that when a donut hole powered by Mountain Dew comes flying out of your nose, things are not going well. When we got back, I said, there is no chance I will ever do that again. No one will ever convince me to go deep sea fishing ever again. I, I planted a stake. And like I said, I vowed before God and the elders that it would not happen. This past spring, our men's ministry did something that was just really cool. We invited 12 young leaders in this church to join us in a class, lasted 14 weeks, called the Sons of Asher. It is without a doubt the most fun I have ever had in men's ministry. These young men were spectacular to spend time with. It was inspiring to be with them, and the teaching that, that we got to do was absolutely fantastic. When we started that class, we wanted to create an event where they would not only bond, but have an opportunity to be catapulted forward in leadership. And over and over and over again, we kept landing on the idea of going fishing off the coast of Westport. I told Josh Erickson and Brian Stewart, the two elders that were spearheading this, that I didn't want to do it. I begged them to not do it. I laid face down in my office pleading with God for another idea. Please, Lord, give us another option. God never responded. He never responded. And that reminded me that when we were out there 10 years ago, not only did I think I was going to die, but at some points I questioned, and it's painful to say this as a preacher, I questioned the existence of God. That's how bad it was. I could remember thinking, if God is there and He is benevolent and He loves me, He would calm these seas down. He did it for the disciples. He did it for other people. I kept looking in the bow of the ship thinking, Jesus is asleep up there. If He just stands up and says, wind, calm down, that's all we would need. God never did it. And so I found myself in my office thinking, if God is benevolent and He loves me, we will come up with another idea. No idea. We came up with nothing. So finally... I had to agree to these two elders that I would go, and I did. 
reluctantly. And the only reason that I could is the fact that Chad Rebo, Dr. Chad Rebo, was in our Sons of Asher class. Not only is he a man of God, he is a gifted physician. And when we threw the idea out and I said, yeah, let's all go out on the puker, this will be great. <laughs> Chad said, there's some new technology, Phil, and I can guarantee you that you will not be throwing up. I said, you can guarantee me that? He said, we'll take care of it. I will take care of you. So every week when we would talk about this fishing trip, I would look over at Chad and Chad would look back at me and go, I got this. Okay, so I trusted him, went to the pharmacy, and I, I picked up the patches that he had prescribed for me. Three of them came in the pack. I put them all on. <laughs> there was a little bottle of pills. I was supposed to take a pill in the morning, and then two hours later, take another pill, and two hours later, take another pill. I took two each time. I was not going to run the risk of experiencing what I had experienced the first time. And here was my other caveat. The only way I was getting on that boat is if Chad, Dr. Rebo, was right next to me. We had two charter boats rented, and we filled both of them. I did not care, not one little bit, who fished on what boat, as long as Dr. Rebo was right next to me. I figured that if the seas got angry and the wind started to rage again, the vomiting would start, and I wanted him to be there to resuscitate or do whatever he needed to do to keep me alive. But my second fear was this. If they got really bad and everybody was puking and the seas were raging and we had 100-foot waves like we did the last time, they would throw the man of God overboard. I have read the Bible. That's what they do. When the seas get bad, they chunk the man of God into the waves. And so I thought, before anybody picks me up and throws me over the railing of that boat, Dr. Rebo is going to call time of death so that I know that I'm not going to have to go in there and swim for my life. So I said, Chad will be right next to me. And he was the whole time saying, it's going to be okay, Phil. You're going to be all right. And I'm listening to that thinking, oh, Doc, I hope you're all right. I hope you're right. And he was. I am happy to report that of the 30 men that went on that fishing trip with us, there were six pukers, and I was not one of them. <laughs> I can give you the name of every one of them, but I won't do that. I was not one of them. Even when the hurling started on our ship, I stayed strong. <laughs> Dr. Rebo was right next to me saying, Phil, you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. And he was right. He was right. Now, have you ever found yourself in a situation where the presence of another person brought calm thoughts and feelings to your heart and mind? You ever been in a situation like that where you simply needed to know that there was somebody near you that could help and make everything okay? How many of you know what I'm talking about? That ministry of presence is absolutely amazing when we are at the face of some of our biggest challenges when we're having to deal with some of the most difficult things of our life, simply knowing that there is someone near us that can make everything okay is all we need to face it. For some people, that might be a doctor. For other people, that might be a friend. For some, it's a spouse. For some people, it is the presence of God himself. Just knowing that God is there is all we need. For many Christians... We've experienced things where God has stepped beside us, whispered in our ear that everything would be okay, and on the backside of it, we were able to say, he was right, and I am so glad 
he was there. The ministry of God's presence is immense, particularly when we face the biggest challenges of our lives. In the Bible, there's a fellow that had to learn that in the most basic of ways. His name is Joshua. There's an entire book of the Bible named after him. But in the first chapter of his book, he finds out exactly how strong and powerful God's presence is. I want to show you how he faced down the biggest challenge of his life solely by knowing that God was with him. But before we get there, I want to introduce you to this guy. He is remarkable in Scripture. Again, his name is Joshua. If you want to turn to Joshua chapter 1, keep your finger there. But I'm going to take you back into a couple other places in the Old Testament so that you can see him for who he really is. He was a Hebrew born during the Egyptian captivity. His life began in slavery. He got to experience the exodus out of Egypt after Moses came and and dealt with Pharaoh and led a million plus people, Hebrew people, out of Egypt. Joshua was there. He quickly caught the eye of Moses himself and he rose in prominence and leadership among the Hebrew people as they wandered in the desert. It's pretty impressive when you get into his story to learn exactly how much Moses and God thought of him. Let me show it to you. We're in the book of Exodus right now. So if you're at Joshua chapter 1, keep your finger there. Turn back to the left to the book of Exodus chapter 17. We'll pick up in verse 8. Exodus 17 verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now let's stop there for just a second. We're going to stay in this passage, but take a break with me. Follow what's happening. This is a familiar story. Hollywood has grabbed hold of this story. They have depicted it in a lot of different ways. And always, in every depiction, Moses comes out of it as the hero of the story. He's standing up on the side of the hill. He has his staff in hand. When he holds that staff up, God's children win. When his arms get tired and his staff goes down, his arms go down, Amalek begins to win and the Israelites begin to experience defeat. So Moses would rest for a few minutes and raise his hands back up, victory would happen. Then he would get tired, his arms would go down and defeat would happen. That was the pattern until Aaron and Hur came and stood alongside him and they held his arms up. As they were holding his arms up, Moses could relax and he no longer had to worry about it. So coincidentally, Aaron and Hur become the secondary heroes of the story. Moses is the first in every depiction of it. Aaron and Hur are second in every depiction of it. But I would offer to you that Moses was not the hero of this story. He was the vehicle through which God's power came to the Israelites. Aaron and Hur were not the heroes of the story. 
though every leader needs an Aaron and a Hur beside them that will hold his or her arms up when they get tired. The real hero of the story was Joshua. He was the boots on the ground. Joshua was the one at the base of the hill leading the Israelites. These are, these are slaves. These are displaced slaves that are wandering around in the desert. And Joshua is tasked with the job of turning them into an army. And he has to go up against the most powerful army they have ever faced. The most powerful army of the day. Joshua is the one who has to lead them. Moses is up there holding his arms up and God is doing great things through him. Aaron and her are a part of that, but they're not the heroes and neither is Moses. Joshua is. Joshua is down there getting it done. He's the one that is facing down the enemy. And how cool is that? I want you to see what God does for him. In the very next verse, this is nothing short of miraculous. Take a look. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Did you catch what God said to Moses? For the next 40 years, Moses, while we wander in this desert, anytime you are near Joshua, you whisper in his ear the events of this day. You tell him over and over and over again what happened here. You remind him regularly of the victory that I provided. What a gift from God. 40 years of Moses whispering in Joshua's ear would prepare him for the biggest challenge of his life that's coming in Joshua chapter 1. But for 40 years, God said to Moses, you tell him all about it. Don't ever let him forget this. There were some other things during the days of the Exodus as they wandered in the wilderness that would set Joshua apart in leadership. He was, interestingly enough, with Moses on Mount Sinai when Moses went the first time up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Joshua was there. He came down the mountain standing right next to Moses. When Moses saw that the children had built a golden calf and was appalled by it, and he threw down the stones that the law of God was written on, Joshua was right there. The second time Moses went up the mountain, God said to him, you go alone, don't take anybody with you. Now, this is my opinion and my interpretation of Scripture, so you accept it for that. But I think the reason that God did that was he said, these people cannot remain on their own. Look what they did the last time. So you leave Joshua there. Not one person among the Israelis would have wanted to contend with Joshua, and if they'd have thought about building a golden calf, they'd have contended with Joshua. So Joshua stayed. He was the one who remained while Moses went back up the mountain. When Moses would go into the tent of meeting to meet with the Lord and the Shekinah glory of God would descend upon that tent and descend upon Moses and he would come out and his face would glow with the glory of God. Do you know who stood at the entrance to that tent? Joshua did. He was Moses' bodyguard and nobody was getting in that tent. Nobody was going to interrupt what was happening between God and Moses during those times. Joshua was the one that was called upon to remain at the entrance of the tent. Joshua was a man of power. Joshua was a man of influence. Joshua was a man of significance. 
God knew it, and Moses knew it, and God used him, and so did Moses. Looked at his giftedness and said, let's turn him loose. It's a cool story all the way through. When it came time for the Hebrew people to go into the promised land, 12 spies were chosen from among the 12 tribes. Joshua and another man, Caleb, were counted among those 12. They went into the promised land to spy it out, and they came back with a a great report. Leave the book of Exodus with me now. Go to the book of Numbers. Numbers 13, verse 25. Here's the report they came back with. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They went into the promised land, and they came back with a cluster of grapes and said, Look, this is what waits for us. It does flow with milk and honey, just like God said it would. This place is as spectacular as we have dreamed of all of these years. But instead of stopping there, those spies went on to share some of the challenges they would face. Verse 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, let me stop there for just a second. The descendants of Anak are incredibly significant. They are the giants of the land. By most accounts, the majority of scholars would tell you that Goliath was a descendant of Anak. Giants. They grew to be nine, ten feet tall. Other biblical scholars would tell you that they were the descendants that remained on the earth after the flood. Read Genesis chapter 6 if you want to hear where these people came from. They were a superhuman race, and they were in the promised land, giants in the land. So they said, besides, the descendants of Anak are there. We're in trouble. But listen to their very next statement. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Amalekites are the very ones that Joshua had been at war with when Moses was holding his arms up. But what had Joshua heard for 40 years? Don't worry about it. I will wipe them off the face of the earth. For 40 years, Moses had been whispering in his ear, when it comes time for you to face them again, don't you worry about it. God is with you. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. The spies came back and they said, this is what we must face to take this land. Ten of them believed that there was no way that they could overcome these challenges. They were scared spitless. There was no way that we could deal with them. The giants are too big. The Amalekites are too powerful. We can't do this. The Canaanites have ships, they have a navy, we can't deal with this. We are former slaves that have been wandering for 40 years. We don't have the ability. Well, Joshua and Caleb spoke words of reason to them. This is in chapter 14, starting in verse 6. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. 
Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Joshua is rallying the troops. Hey, we don't have to worry about this. God is on our side. He has removed His presence and His protection from all of those people. The victory is already ours. That's the paraphrase of what he's saying. We got this. We don't have to worry about it. We got this. Listen to the response of the people, though. This is shocking. Verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. They didn't want to hear what Joshua and Caleb had to say. They wanted to kill them, get them out of the way, so that they could remain right where they were at, stuck in their own ruts, without moving into the promised land. We will stay here. We will eat manna. We will eat quail until we die. We don't need those grapes. We don't need the milk. We don't need the honey. We will stay right here. That's what they were saying. Or worse, let's go backwards to Egypt. At least we'll be well fed there. Well, that was their response. God's response would be unequaled. We're still in chapter 14. Look at verse 36. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. Verse 37. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. That's how God responded. These men had the responsibility of just going and figuring out the strategy that was necessary, and they came back and said it was impossible. Nothing is impossible with God, and they should have known it. They should have known it. And only Joshua and Caleb did. Yes, it was a big challenge. No question about that. It was a big challenge, but it was not impossible. Not at all. They had God on their side, and He was all they needed. They could face this thing down. Joshua would eventually be the one in charge. Moses will be taken out of the picture, and Joshua will be the one who has to lead them. Now let's go to Joshua chapter 1. Verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Moses had a very private death. God was the only other one present. He had taken him up into the mountains where Moses died. He had a very private funeral. God was the only one present. He buried Moses in the mountains. The book of Jude teaches us that God concealed the gravesite. He placed an angel in front of it so that nobody would ever find the body of Moses out of fear that they would worship that body rather than him. God has, from that day till today, concealed the body of Moses. But Joshua's in charge. After the time of mourning, the Lord just spoke very practically to Joshua. Moses is dead. Everything that Joshua had done up to this point, Moses had always been there. He was his safety net. And now Moses is dead. He will not go into the promised land with you, Joshua. You will lead them in. This is your job now. Can you imagine the emotion that would have surrounded that? Joshua had to be terrified. 
Take them into the promised land, lead a million plus people into the promised land, help them find their homes, do everything that Moses has always done, be the voice that God has with these people. I'm supposed to take over this position of leadership. This is a challenge I am unequipped for. I don't know how to do this. Moses is dead. God, what are you talking about? That's what's going through Joshua's mind. There's somebody else. Let Aaron lead them. I don't want to do this. Let her lead them. They're the secondary heroes of the whole story. Let them take the role of leadership. I don't want it. Those are all the thoughts that had to run through Joshua's mind at the moment God said to him, Moses is dead. He was outside of his comfort zone. Oh, he was a warrior, but now he had to lead. This was a new season in his life that Joshua had been preparing for forever. He just didn't know it. But now he was going to have to rise to the occasion. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you were outside of your comfort zone and you were going to have to do something that you did not feel prepared to do and you were terrified as a result? Most of you have. You found yourself saying, I, I, I'm not up to this challenge. This is something I've never been prepared for. I can't do this. Most everybody in this room knows exactly what that feels like. What you may not know is there is actually a term for that. Here it is. Take a look. That means that you have experienced xenophobia. That is the exact term for what it means when we come up against the challenge of our life and we are outside our comfort zone and we don't know how to handle it. Xenophobia is defined this way. It is the irrational sensation of fear experienced about a person or a group of persons, as well as situations that are perceived as strange or foreign. It is the fear of anything beyond one's comfort zone. The term xenophobia in the last 12 months has really risen to a lot of prominence. It's been used over and over and over again. I don't want to get into who it's been used about or the groups of people that it's been used about, but it's been turned into a racial term because of the first part of that definition. It means that you have an irrational sense of fear over a person or a group of people. But that is not the only definition of xenophobia. And in the last 12 months, it has been twisted out of context. The real definition of xenophobia is tied to the last sentence. It is the fear of anything beyond one's comfort zone. You ever been afraid of something beyond your comfort zone? Raise your hand again if you have been. Congratulations, you are a xenophobe. So am I. You have now been diagnosed. You are xenophobic in that moment where you are terrified. You have an irrational sense of fear about the unknown. That's xenophobia. So I wanted to find out how psychologists today are helping people deal with xenophobia. So I did an extensive internet search on xenophobia. When I say extensive, it lasted about three minutes. It took that long to come to a prescription for how to deal with xenophobia. Psychology Today gives a seven-step process. I want you to see all seven of these. If you've ever been afraid, an irrational sense of fear about the unknown, then these seven things might help you. Here they are. Number one, write down what you are anxious about. Okay, that's fair. Number two, breathe in and out. Because if you don't, you understand. Number three, do yoga or stretch. Number four, exercise regularly. Number five, seek out positive memories of victory. Number six, hire a coach or a counselor to help you through the situation. Number seven, 
Avoid stimulants like coffee or energy drinks. <laughs> now, there's a couple of these that I think are pretty solid, like remember your past victories. That's why God would say to Moses, you whisper in Joshua's ear for 40 years about what happened here. And I think breathe in and out is probably pretty good advice when you are experiencing an irrational fear because otherwise you die. So breathe in and out, reflect on your past victories. Maybe it's good to stretch and exercise. I'm not going to argue those points, but there has to be a better prescription for how to deal with those moments where we are outside our comfort zone. And my friends, there is. It's found in the Bible in the first chapter of Joshua. Let's go back there. Joshua chapter 1. We're going to pick up now in verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan River. All the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Nine things. Some of you just said, did he just say nine things? What time is it? I want to take you through these really fast. It is not going to take long, and you're going to have to listen fast as we go through this. But this is nine things that will help you deal with xenophobic moments when you are outside your comfort zone, and they come directly from the Bible, from this one chapter. If you are facing new challenges in your life, there is great wisdom in reading this chapter over and over and over again until you get through it. So let me take you through these nine things. Here's what you will learn from it. Number one, you need to recognize that you have to move forward. 
when you are facing a challenge, whatever it is, and you are outside your comfort zone, and you have an irrational sense of fear that is attached to it, you must move forward. Staying where you're at or going backwards does you no good, so you must move forward. That's exactly what Joshua had to do. If you want the promised land, you got to take a step across the river. Move forward. Number two, remember to trust God. Take a look again at verse three and listen to what God says to Joshua. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. When you are facing those challenges and xenophobia is raging within you and you have an irrational sense of fear, then you remember this. God has already worked out the details. All you have to do is get moving. Get moving, let him take care of the small things. He's already done it. Every place that you put the sole of your foot, I have already taken care of. God has the details covered. Get moving. Number three, check your attitude. I really like this one in verse six. Listen to, again, what God says. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. When he was terrified, God would say to him, be strong and courageous. Don't worry about this. Be strong and courageous. And that leads us to number four. Did I mention be strong and courageous? In verse seven, God would actually circle back to, to Joshua and say, be very strong and courageous for the Lord your God goes with you. When you face new challenges, boldness is necessary. And that's what leads us actually to number five. Once you have that type of boldness, you set your jaw on God's provision. Did you catch that God would say to Joshua, once you start moving into the promised land, don't you turn your head to the left or to the right? You keep moving forward. If you know this is right and you know that God brought you to it and you are facing down this challenge, then in faith, don't even turn your head. You stay fixed on where you're going. Set your jaw on what God is leading you into and don't ever compromise it. Number six, check the map often. We're going to read verse eight again. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. As Tina and I were headed back from Kansas City, we had the opportunity to swing through Colorado and see our son Eli and then Wyoming where we got to spend a night with our daughter Katie. We got to spend a night with both of them. So when we left Kansas City, we decided to stay off the interstate and take some of the back roads. That meant that we had to place a lot of faith in Siri. So every step of the way, we would say, Siri, get us directions too, and she would. And she took us to the next place. Well, on our way out of Cody, Wyoming, after we had left Katie, we asked Siri to get us home, and I'm telling you, I think she lost her mind. I really think that. She was taking us places that did not make any logical sense to me at all. They didn't make any sense to Tina either, and I'll be honest with you and just tell you, Tina doesn't have a great sense of direction, and she's saying, this doesn't seem right. So both of us said at almost the same time, gosh, wish we had a map laying on our laps right now to make sure that she's right. Sometimes you got to check the map. The map that God has given us is His Word. Check the map. As the Spirit is leading you, check the map. 
Get into the Bible to know that the decisions that you are making are right. Xenophobia will start to fall away. The fear will start to fall away as you are reinforced by the power of God's Word that you are taking the right steps. Check the map often. Number seven, make good plans. In verse 10, Joshua tells all of the leaders of the Israelites, you go through the camp and you tell them to make provisions because we're leaving in three days. There's wonderful wisdom in using the common sense and the brains that God gave you. When you are moving into a new challenge, make good plans. Use your head. Use the common sense that God blessed you with. Make good provisions. Then you're going to be ready for whatever it is that you have to face. Number eight, help others when they need you to get them where they are going. Two and a half tribes were left on the east side of the Jordan River. They were left there by God's design. That was their land. That was their inheritance. They would never cross over into Canaan. They would set up housekeeping on the east side of the river. But God would tell them through Joshua that the fighting men of those two and a half tribes were to move forward with them. You go help the other people. Let me illustrate for you how that works. Bryce Huck, just a couple of years ago, started a new business called Bad Medicine Bike Shop right across from Dream Marine. A lot of you have been in there. You've supported what Bryce is doing, and good on you. It's a great thing that Bryce has going on. Love his business and the way that he is using that. I have sent a number of people over to Bryce in the past few months that are looking at starting their own businesses because Bryce has just plowed this dirt. I've said, you go over there and you talk to Bryce and he'll show you what you have to do and how he surrounded himself with the right people. He'll help you figure those things out. So go talk to Bryce. As they're moving into their own dreams and their own promised lands, Bryce has already done it. So Bryce is helping them help other people get to their destinations. Once you have made your plans and you're moving into the promised land, help other people. It changes your focus and it helps diminish your own fear because you are helping others do what God has led them to do. So help other people. And here's the last one. I really like this. Be strong and courageous. Be bold. Two different times God told Joshua to be strong and courageous. The third time the people, the Israelites, the Hebrews told Joshua, we'll go with you. Be strong and courageous. It again is an attitude check. Xenophobia does not have to paralyze you when you grab hold of that whole idea that God is on your side. Be bold and courageous. I had Chad standing right next to me saying, everything is going to be okay, Phil. We are going to make it through this. You're not going to puke. It is okay. Be bold and courageous. So finally I lowered my line. <laughs> be bold and courageous. You have the presence of God around you all the time. The Lord your God goes with you. Be bold and courageous. Those nine steps can help you through every challenge you will ever face. Those nine biblical steps can take you into the promised land. When you are scared to death, follow them. Get back into Joshua chapter 1 and follow the steps. Whatever challenge you are facing, maybe you're looking for a new job, Maybe you lost your job by no particular course of events. You just lost your job and you don't know what the future holds. You're scared. Follow those steps. Maybe you went to the doctor and the doctor told you that you need to get your affairs in order and you're facing a new challenge. You don't know how to do this. 
Because most of us spend all of our days figuring out how to live and we don't have any idea how to die. It's a huge challenge. You be bold and courageous for the Lord your God goes with you. You follow those steps. Maybe you're in new territory relationally and and you don't want to be there and you are scared and you don't know what it's going to look like. Get into Joshua chapter 1. Set your jaw on doing what is right. Be bold and courageous. Watch what God's going to do. Maybe it's not so negative, but you have some positive challenges in front of you. Maybe you're just wanting to start your own business, and that's the promised land. You be bold and courageous. Maybe you have health issues that will change your quality of life, and all you have to do is is stop eating meat and start eating vegetables. God help you. (laughs) Be bold and courageous and do what you need to do. Maybe relationally, you're not looking at it saying that I'm trying to save something. I just want to help grow intimacy within the relationship. Then follow the steps of Joshua chapter 9 and see where God takes you. You be bold and courageous. See what happens. Xenophobia does not have to paralyze nor stop what God is doing in our lives. You move into the promised land and God will go with you. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, we just covered a lot of territory. I pray that you will use the things we study in each of our lives because we will all face new challenges. Help us remember that you will go with us. Allow us to put our feet down on the trail that you have carved out for us. Help us, Lord, to find the peace and the calm that comes from knowing that you are beside us. Remind us all the time that that's where you're at. Whisper in our ear like Moses did in Joshua's. And tell us that you're there. We trust you, Lord. We love you. Help us face down these enemies. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are facing times of challenge in your life right now, I want to encourage you to take the first bold and courageous step that you can. Take a step into prayer. Bible says that where two or three gather together in the name of the Lord, He is in their midst. There's a lot of people that will not be bold enough to take a step forward into prayer, and that means they stay stuck right where they're at. So why don't you take a bold step today and respond by going over to the prayer room and just tell Deanie that you need somebody to pray with. He will pair you up, and you'll have somebody to do that with. Respond to this invitation. It's the first step into a bold, courageous new life.